Good morning, everyone. Oh, I'm wrong. <laughs> Screwed up the song. <laughs> Haven't played it in a while. Too long ago, I turned 58 in last grade. But someone asked me if I was feeling kind of sad or was bad. And life had come and gone so very quickly. And middle age arrived to come and kick me. I just shook my head and said, Oh no. Just one more day Closer to going home To see my Lord on his throne Surrounded by his angels and saints To sing his praise night and day Growing old reminds me that I'll soon be going home People ask me if I'm bothered Cause I lost my hair don't care My ears don't hear and my eyes don't even see a thing But I sing Because these things remind me What's approaching When I will be released From all my suffering I don't mind the loss Of all these things Cause I just one more day Closer to going home See my Lord on his throne Surrounded by his angels and saints Sing his praise night and day Growing old reminds me that I'll soon be going on I'm just one more day Closer to going home To see my Lord on his throne Surrounded by his angels and saints Sing his praise night and day Growing all reminds me that I'll soon be going home right back with you and while I'm doing that can you turn to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 
All right, uh, good morning again. Turn your Bibles, if you haven't done so already, to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And as you can see on the board today, we'll uh, be looking at the uh, the first two descriptions of Gentile Christians before their justification. So if you're a Gentile Christian, this is a description of you and I prior to our conversion to Christianity, our justification. And this will constitute the 104th hour in Ephesians. And just an announcement, uh, this, uh, this Saturday will be our last uh, class before... Uh, a Thanksgiving break next week. We're not going to have classes. We won't resume classes until uh, Tuesday, November 28th. So this Saturday is the uh, the final class before that Thanksgiving break. We'll resume classes on Tuesday, November 28th. And we also have a Christmas break coming up. And I haven't decided how long. Uh, it usually is about a month. So uh, I might go a little longer this time. And uh, so... Um, Anyways, that's uh, just, uh, I'll be announcing that uh, in, in the not-too-distant future. Probably, uh, maybe next week I'll do so. We'll see. I don't, we won't have classes next week. Duh! <laughs> probably, probably the week, and the very last week of the of the month, you know, like the 28th or the, uh, the 30th, I'll start announcing it. Okay, when am I going to take that Christmas Christmas break? All right, um, let's take a moment of silent prayers. This is that custom, custom. We take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves, determine if we're in fellowship with God. Because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5, 18, to be filled with the Spirit. And Colossians 3.16, to let the word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing, and distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5, 7 says. Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, another gift that you've given to us uh, on this earth. And we just pray, Father, that we'll use our time wisely here on earth, whatever time we have left. And I just pray, Father, we'd all live in light of the imminency of the return of your Son at the rapture, the resurrection of the church, or our death. And uh, when would we absent from the body face to face with your Son, Jesus Christ? And I just pray, Father, we would uh, be, everybody in this ministry would be good stewards with the time, talent, and treasure and truth that you've given to us so that we can get a full reward at the Bama seat, which immediately, as you've taught us, immediately follows the rapture, the resurrection of the church. I pray, Father, for today's class. I thank you for the study in Ephesians, first of all. I pray the study would be a blessing to people that are there here live listening or later date through the recordings or watching, listening, wherever they're uh, getting this uh, information. I pray, Father, today that you would help me to, by the power of Spirit, to communicate your full counsel today to your people with regards to Ephesians 2.12 and these two descriptions of Gentile Christians before justification. I pray, Father, help me do so with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power so your people could receive the necessary spiritual nourishment. And uh, also pray for your people in the audience, help them to learn, uh, understand what's being taught by the Spirit, make uh, carefully consider the passages and principles that we'll be noting here today in order to make personal application. I pray, Father, that the lesson, uh, the message would be a blessing to your people and provide for them the necessary spiritual nourishment and enabling them to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
We also pray there'll be no problems with the recordings, the video, and the audio. Thank you for the technology and the people taking advantage of it. I pray there would be no problems with these things. Protect them from the enemy. And, and uh, I also pray, Father, for streaming video by YouTube. Thank you for the service that they provide. And I pray it would continue, continue to function properly, Father. So we pray for this service in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, your Son, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. You should be at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And um, today, I'm going to, well, we, today's NIV we read from the other day. Uh, let's read today from, let's read from the NRSV. We haven't learned from that in a long time. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter. And then we'll go back to my translation, look at the whole chapter in my translation before we dig into, begin to dig into Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. So it says, and I'm reading from the NRSV today. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the year, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of our flesh, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trans trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. So then, remember that at one time, you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who were called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances and he, that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, both of us, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, Christ Jesus, the whole structure, is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. So let's look at my translation now of this same chapter. It goes as follows. Now, correspondingly, even though each and every one of you as a corporate unit was spiritually dead ones because of your transgressions, in other words, because of your sins, each and every one of you formerly lived by means of these in agreement with the standard of the unregenerate people of this age, which is the production of the cosmic world system, in agreement with the standard of the sovereign ruler, namely the sovereign governmental authority ruling over the evil spirits residing in the Earth's atmosphere. Specifically, the spirit, speaking of course of Satan, who is presently working the lives of those members of the human race who are characterized by disobedience, the non-Christian, among whom each and every one of us in the Christian community also, formally, for our own selfish benefit, conducted our lives by means of those lusts, 
which are produced by our flesh, specifically by indulging those inclinations which are produced by our flesh. In other words, those impulses which are the product of our flesh. Consequently, each and every one of us caused ourselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of our natural condition from physical birth, just as the rest correspondingly caused themselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of their natural condition from physical birth. But because God is rich with regards to mercy, because of the exercise of his great love with which he loved each and every one of us, even though each of us as a corporate unit was spiritually dead ones because of our transgressions, he caused each and every one of us in the Christian community to be made alive together with the one and only Christ. Each and every one of you as a corporate unit in the Gentile Christian community are saved because of grace. Specifically, he caused each one of us as a corporate unit to be raised with him. Correspondingly, he caused each of us as a corporate unit to be seated in the heavenly, heavenly places because of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus. He did this so that he could display for his own glory during the ages which are certain to come the incomparable wealth which is the product of his grace because of kindness for the benefit of each one of us because of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus. Each and every one of you as a corporate unit are saved because of grace by means of faith in other words, this salvation never originated from any one of you as a source. It originated as the gift from God. It never originated from meritorious actions as a source, so that a person cannot, for their own benefit, enter into the state of boasting. For each and every one of us are his creative workmanship. For all of us, without exception, have been created by means of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus in order to produce actions which are divine good. These God prepared in advance so that each of us would conduct our lives by means of them. Verse 11, Therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit must continue to make it your habit of remembering that formerly each of you who belonged to the Gentile race with respect to the human body, specifically those who received the designation uncircumcision by those who received the designation circumcision with respect to the human body performed by human hands, each one of you all used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. Each of you used to be alienated from the nation of Israel's citizenship. Specifically, each of you used to be strangers to the most important promise, which is the product of the covenants. Each of you not, used to not possess a confident expectation of blessing. And consequently, each one of you used to be without a relationship with God and the sphere of the cosmic world system. However, because of your faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus, all of you, without exception, who formerly were far away from now, have now been brought near by the means of the blood belonging to this same Christ. For he himself personifies this peace, namely by causing both groups to be one, specifically by destroying the wall which served as the barrier, that is, that which caused hostility between the two races and the two races with God. In other words, by nullifying by means of his human nature, the law composed of the commandments consisting of a written code of laws in order that he might cause the two to be created into one new humanity by means of faith in himself for justification and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Thus he caused peace to be established between the two races and the two races with God. In other words, in order that he would reconcile both groups into one body to God through his cross. Consequently, he put to death the hostility between the two races and the two races with God by means of faith in himself for justification and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Verse 17. Correspondingly, 
He, as a result, came proclaiming peace for the benefit of each one, every one of you, namely those who are far off, likewise peace to those who are near. Consequently, through the personal intermediate agency of himself, each and every one of us as a corporate unit in the Christian community, namely both groups, Jew and Gentile Christians, are experiencing access by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit to the presence of the Father. Indeed, therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit are no longer foreigners to the covenants of promise, that is, foreign citizens. But rather, each one of you as a corporate unit are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, members of God's household, because each one of you as a corporate unit have been built upon the foundation, which is the communication of the gospel to each one of you by the apostles as well as prophets. Simultaneously, he himself, namely Christ Jesus, is the cornerstone. On the basis of, of its being continually fitted, inextricably together, by means of justification by faith, and union and identification with him, the whole building is growing into a holy temple by appropriating by faith, union and identification with the Lord. In other words, by appropriating by faith your union and identification with him, all of you without exception are being built together into God's dwelling place by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit. And that's uh, chapter 2 of my translation. So, we see that uh, in, the, in, 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 uh, in chapter 1, uh, excuse me, quickly by way of review, let's back it up. Chapter 1, we have the prologue of the letter in verses 3 through 14, where we have a triadic pattern with each member, the work of each member of the Trinity is mentioned in, in, uh, in this prologue, which introduces the letter, begins the body of the letter. Uh, the work of the fathers mentioned in eternity past with election and predestination in verses 3 through 6. Verses 7 through 11, uh, 12 uh, speak of the work of the Son of Redemption at the cross. And the work of the Holy Spirit is mentioned in verses 13 and 14 uh, with regards to at the moment of justification and the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. This prompted Paul to pray uh, because what it revealed uh, in the, uh, the contents of the prologue is that they were believers he was writing to. And... Ephesians 2.11, which we just read, uh, identifies them as Gentile Christians. And so uh, the, the first prayer that's uh, in verse 15 through 23 of chapter 1 serve as a hinge uh, to, in the letter. And, uh, and also the second intercessory prayer in chapter 3, uh, verses 14 to the end of that chapter, also serve as a hinge as well. So this first prayer in verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1 is uh, prompted by the fact that uh, Paul's writing to believers in the Roman province of Asia. It was a circular letter, as we pointed out. Not just the Christian community in Ephesus was the target for this letter, but all the various Christian communities throughout the Roman province of Asia, more than likely the seven churches of Asia, mentioned by John in Revelation 2 and 3. And we know it's a circular letter because of two things. One, there's no personal greetings in the letter, because, and that's significant because Paul was uh, there for three years. It was his home base according to Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20, but more significant than that because there are letters that Paul has where he doesn't have personal greetings even though he knew the people quite well, uh, would be the fact that uh, Ephesus in verse 1 of chapter 1 does not appear in the best and oldest manuscripts. It's in the manuscript tradition. That's why we have it. It's, it's the most prominent one, but uh, we know that it was probably a circular letter because it was not in the earliest, best manuscripts, and uh, so that's significant. In fact, uh, it was in the ancient world, a man named Martian, who was a heretic. He actually saw this letter, the contents of this letter, and it was identified as the, the letter to the Laodiceans, which corresponds to what Paul says in Colossians, at the end of Colossians chapter 4, if you recall, those who studied that book with me, that, uh, that uh, Paul says, I want you to exchange letters in the Colossian Christian community with 
the, uh, the, the, the letter to the Laodiceans, which we know as Ephesians. And so many people, many scholars like myself uh, and by pastors like myself, they, they believe that the letter to the Laodiceans that Paul mentions at the end of Gal- uh, Colossians is actually uh, the letter to the, the Ephesians. And we have a witness to the fact that the contents of what we know as Ephesians was also uh, identified as being addressed to the Laodiceans. So, uh, so the, the Christian community and the Gentile Christian community throughout the Roman province of Asia, uh, Paul is identifying in, the, in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1 that they were believers justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And, and simultaneously at that moment, through the baptism of the Spirit, they were identified with Christ in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father. Also, Paul says in Ephesians 1.15, what also prompted him to pray for them, not only that they were believers in union with Christ, but that they were practicing the command to love one another, which is tied to the purpose of this letter. Uh, Ephesians 4, 1-3 would seem to indicate that he's concerned about keeping unity experientially between the Gentile and Jewish Christian communities. So, uh, he intercedes in prayer for them, and then we get to chapter 2. He starts describing the, uh, the Gentiles the first of two times, uh, he's describing the Gentile Christian community the first of two times in verses 1 through 3, identifying the fact that they were enslaved, enslaved to sin, Satan, and his cosmic system. But he does this in order to accentuate the grace and love of God because even though despite the fact that they were dead in their sins and transgressions, as we saw in Ephesians 2, 4 through 10, God the Father, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and justification by faith in Christ, he I raised them up and seated them with Jesus Christ at his right hand. And so uh, that's how he made us alive together with him at our justification. So this is to accentuate the grace and love of God that the Gentile Christian community is the beneficiaries of. And uh, that's to keep us humble. It's also to understand that uh, we were, uh, like the Jewish Christian community, we're saved based upon the merits of the object of our faith. It's nothing we did. And uh, we should all be humble in relation to each other the Jewish and Gentile Christian communities. Why is that an issue, the Jewish and Gentile Christian communities? Because today in the 21st century, that's not a big deal because most Christians are Gentiles. Well, it was in the first century, as we pointed out. In fact, you read the book of Acts, Acts 15, the first church council was about this relationship. And also in Galatians, we see the, the whole thing with Peter and Paul rebuking Peter. It was the, the relationship between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. Uh, the, 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 Acts chapter 15 uh, the Judaizers, who were Jewish Christians in that context, trying to uh, were believers in Jesus. They were, try, they were telling the Gentile Christians that they needed to li- get under the law and, pr- and live their lives according to the law. Paul and the, and the other apostles, Peter, James, and John, in Acts 15, said, no, they don't. So uh, Paul was very concerned about uh, the relationship and how they functioned toward each other because it was culture shock for, for the Jewish Christians uh, remember, they came from a background of the Mosaic Law with dietary regulations. That's why they never went to a home of a Gentile. That's why Peter in Acts chapter 10 had to be told three times in a vision, it's all right to go to a Gentile's home. And so he did with Cornelius, and he gave them and his fa- uh, Cornelius and his family the gospel, and they were received the baptism of the Spirit, and just like the Jewish Christians did at, on the day of Pentecost in 33 AD in Jerusalem. And so, therefore, the, 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 the Jews... Uh, remember Jesus taught them they could eat all foods, but some Jewish Christians had a hard time with that. It took them a while uh, to, uh, to adjust to that teaching of Jesus because they were indoctrinated from a young age that they could only eat certain foods clean and unclean. And the unclean they couldn't eat, of course. 
And this was to, uh, the, the reason why those dietary regulations, regulations came about, God gave them, not just for health reasons, but really he didn't want to get them into the pagan practices of the Canaanites. So he, and so uh, the Canaanites ate certain meals in relation to the worship of their gods. So that's why you have those dietary regulations that was given uh, under Moses back in the de- back in the, when Moses was leading Israel, and at, and at Mount Sinai at, when they got the law. So we have uh, in the Acts uh, Romans fourteen, you see the dietary regulations issue was brought up. The strong are those who think that they can eat all foods, just like Jesus said they could. Whereas the weak are those who are uh, don't think that they could eat all foods. They're, the weak is more than likely Jewish Christians who didn't had a hard time adjusting. Remember, Peter, Peter had a hard time adjusting. Uh, remember in Acts chapter 2, in that same vision he had, he said he had to rise up and eat these animals. He said, I'm not going to eat unclean. I'm not supposed to eat unclean animals. And I think he thought uh, the Lord was testing him. And so Peter said, didn't realize that Jesus said that they could eat all foods. And uh, so that hadn't sunk into Peter yet. And uh, that we know that, by the way, he said, well, I can't eat this, these animals. And God says, what God says is clean, is clean. <laughs> and so and so they, he could eat it. So I'm telling you, you can eat it now. So he's telling Peter there's a new dispensation, and that's the t- church age. And the reason why he needs to do this is because Jew and Gentile Christians will be united together through the baptism of the Spirit, forming the new humanity, which is what chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 is all about. The new humanity. Remember, why we need a new humanity. Well, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they were to rule over the works of God's hands. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Those who studied Genesis with me years ago. And uh, of course, the fall took place. Adam and Eve fell and uh, t- Satan usurped their authority in the Garden of Eden. How do we know that? Well, it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 that Satan's the god of this world now. And First uh, uh, John five nineteen says the whole world is under his the power and he deceives the entire world. Revelation chapter 12, and also Jesus. Uh, he, when Satan was tempting Jesus in the desert, in Luke chapter 4, uh, he said, uh, you know, if you bow down and worship me, Jesus, I will give you all these kingdoms of the earth. And of course, if th- that wouldn't be a legitimate uh, temptation if he didn't really have that kind of rulership over the earth, and he did. And so uh, we see that, uh, therefore, uh, God had to do something about that. And so he sent his son into the world to become a human being, to live a life of perfect obedience under the law that uh, we couldn't do. And then he also had to suffer the consequences for our sins. And uh, he, therefore, he had to suffer the wrath of God in our place as a consequence of our sins. So he fulfilled the law in that sense by living a perfect life under the law that we couldn't do and then bearing the consequences for uh, what the law says must take place, death, uh, to those who do not keep the law perfectly. You can't have a relationship and a fellowship with God if, unless you're perfect in your obedience to Him. None of us could do that. That's why He had His Son his, sent His perfect Son in the world. So, He sends His Son in the world, and with His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father, He destroyed the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8. And so Satan is a defeated foe. And uh, so uh, his, the execution of his sentence will not be taking place until the, at the end of history, just before the great white throne, at the great white throne judgment. And so uh, we see that uh, Jesus Christ, ascension and session of the right hand of the Father, was the first step in restoring humanity over the works, of, ruling over the works of his hands. And now we're in the process during the church age, which began on the day of Pentecost in June of 33 AD. It will end with the rapture of the church, which is imminent. And he's calling out a people, both Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, uh, rich and poor, 
Uh, he's talking, anybody, every ethnicity, language groups of the world, he's calling out a bride for his, his son, Jesus Christ, to rule with him over the works of his hands. That's your future, people. That's my future. And those who are overcomers, uh, Revelation 2 and 3, John talks about that. These will have positions of authority in Christ's millennial government. Everybody in the church is in. It's only certain members of the body of Christ that will be in positions of authority in Christ's millennial government. He talks about that, the Lord does, in, in Revelation 2 and 3. I'll give you rulership over the nations if you overcome. So everybody gets in in the church as a part of the millennial government, as the bride of Christ in the church age, but only those will be who are overcomers who are faithful till death or rapture, whichever comes first, they'll be over, uh, assigned positions of governmental authority. And we'll be dispossessing Satan and the fallen angels at that time when we come back with Christ at the second advent to end 70th week of Daniel, the times of the Gentiles. And at that time, Antichrist and the false prophet are killed, thrown in the lake of fire, and then the tribulational armies are destroyed, and Antichrist, uh, Satan and the fallen angels are imprisoned for a thousand years. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, we, the church, will judge angels. That's right. We're going to judge angels, and they don't want you to know that. They want you to be, uh, you, you show a healthy respect for Satan's kingdom. We know that from my, uh, Michael when arguing over the body of Moses in, in, in Jude that we studied. And he wouldn't make a railing accusation against uh, Satan when he was arguing and disputing over the body of Moses after Moses' death. And because he respected Satan's authority, and you should too, and the fallen angels. In fact, they have temporary rulership over the governments of this world, including our own, with the exception of Israel, who's under the authority of the elect angel Michael. So, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 is an incredible passage. Now, verses 11 and 12 describe, and in particular, uh, verse 12 is describing the pre-justification, pre-justification, pre-conversion state of these Gentile Christians. And just like he did in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. And why is he doing this? Again, he's trying to accentuate the grace and love of God and that he would take us Gentile Christians who are not in a covenant relationship with God because this is what chapter 12, chapter 2, verses 12 is all about. We weren't, only the nation of Israel, uh, not any Gentile nation on the face of the earth, no Gentile people ever got the law in written form, the scriptures. Uh, they never got the temple tabernacle worship, this temple worship. The, 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 the patriarchs, of, patriarchs of their nation are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And also uh, we have the Christ would come from the Jews, not the Gentiles. Okay? So that's very significant. And so, therefore, we, what God, Paul's trying to tell the Gentile Christian community is that you don't be arrogant to the, the Jewish Christian community. Uh, and that's what his whole point was in, 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 in uh, Revel uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11. He doesn't want the Gentile Christian community to be arrogant toward the Jewish Christian community because of their rejection of the Messiah. That was predicted. And at the second advent, there'll be a national regeneration and re restoration of the nation of Israel and the land. Okay. So, in contrast to the first advent where the majority rejected Jesus. And so, this is, so he's saying, you are far away. These, the Jewish Christian community was much closer to God because of the, the, the covenant relationship they were involved in. So you need to not get arrogant toward them. In fact, as Paul said in Romans 11, uh, the, the, the Jewish, uh, the Gentile Christians should be thankful and respectful of the Jews because salvation is of the Jews, as Jesus said to the Roman, the woman at the Samaritan woman and the, uh, at, the at the well and, and John uh, chapter four, as we saw. And so this is very important. So you and I, 
uh, should uh, have a respect for the, the Jewish Christian community, the Jew, because salvation is of the Jew. And so we were the wild olive branch in that passage. The Gentiles were in Romans 11. And Israel, regenerate Israel, is the olive tree. Uh, the, the branches on the olive tree are born-again Jews. And <clears throat> those off the uh, olive tree are those who are unregenerate Jews. And if they get saved, they're put, put on the olive tree. We're a wild olive branch, and we were engrafted in to the olive tree. That's against nature. They didn't do that. That's trying to emphasize the supernatural nature of us Gentiles getting saved and being united and placed on equal footing with the Jewish Christians. So we're not second-class citizens, Paul's saying. He's trying to encourage uh, these people, uh, the Gentiles, Gentile Christians, that you're on equal footing with these people. And what an amazing thing that is, despite the fact that we were so far away from God not having a covenant relationship with him and also a relationship with Israel. So this is fantastic things. We lose sight of this stuff because in the 21st century, again, most Christians are Gentiles. So we need to understand the context in which we find this particular statements by Paul here in chapter 2 of Ephesians. So with that uh, introduction out of the way, and also a summary of what we've covered thus far, and also what we're what we're uh, looking at in this passage in Ephesians chapter two, verses eleven through twenty-two. Now you know, if you don't know already, where we're at in this particular study. So if you look at my translation on the board of Ephesians chapter two, verses eleven through twelve, it says, "Therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit must continue to make it your habit of remembering." That formerly, each of you who belonged to the Gentile race with respect to the human body, specifically those who received the designation uncircumcision by those who received the designation circumcision with respect to the human body performed by human hands, each of you used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. Each one of you used to be alienated from the nation of Israel's citizenship. Specifically, each of you used to be strangers to the most important promise, which is the product of the covenants. Each of you used to not possess a confident expectation of blessing. Consequently, each one of you used to be without a relationship with God and the sphere of the cosmic world system. Now, notice he says to remember this about themselves. He's saying, remember where you came from. And this is very important as a Christian. It helps put us in things in perspective. God has taught me this a long time ago, and I've had to do it. I always have to do it, especially in times of adversity. Look where you were. Okay, when I get down about my current situation, I go, oh, look where I came from. Look where I used to be. I look at my background. My background is just like this. He's describing my background. I'm a Gentile. I'm a Gentile Christian. He's describing my background, Paul is, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he wants me to remember that. He wants you to remember it as a Gentile, where how far you've come. And it, it causes us to put things in perspective. We used to be in a worse situation prior to our justification, people. Now, Everything's, I mean, we're saved. The worst problem that was resolved for us, being under the wrath of God, enslaved to sin and Satan, this cosmic system, has been done away with. It's been solved. It's been resolved through faith in Jesus Christ and our union identification with him through the ministry of the Holy Spirit at baptism. So this is fantastic news for us. It has application for us today. Paul wants these Christians who are Gentiles to remember where they used to be because he wants, to, he wants them to give thanks to God he, as we pointed out, he wants them to praise God. He wants to keep produce humility in them with regards to their relationship to the Gentile Christian community. And so therefore there might, so in order to promote unity experientially between the two races in the church. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, the first description 
of the unregenerate state of these Gentile Christians is that they used to be characterized as being without a relationship and fellowship with Christ. So therefore, if we compare the command to remember in Ephesians 2.11 with this first description of these Gentile Christians prior to their conversion to Christianity in Ephesians 2.12, Paul wants these Gentile Christians, and you too, you and I, to continue to make it our habit of remembering that we used to be characterized as being without a relationship and a fellowship with Christ. Why does he want us to know this, remember this? To thank God, to thank him for the, to saving us, placing us in union with Christ, putting us on equal footing with Jewish Christians, even though we were not in a covenant relationship with him prior to our conversion, like the Jewish people were and are. So when it says at that time, the expression in the Greek text, to kairo ekeno, that means at that time, and it refers to the unregenerate state of these Gentile Christians. Now, during this period of their lives, they were uncircumcised, without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, possessing absolutely no covenant ex uh, confident expectation of blessing and being without God in the world. So this particular noun that we have, Cairo, it functions as a dative of time which indicates that it's marking this period of their lives when they were unregenerate, when they possessed these characteristics. Now, the word for Christ there, Christos, we've seen this word quite a bit in this particular book. It contains the figure of metonymy. Now, as we've been pointing out, especially in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, and then the first, uh, the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, a lot of time Christ, or the, the intensive personal pronoun, which is, has him as its reference, autos, uh, in the relative pronoun hosts, when it has Jesus as its, its, uh, its uh, referent, uh, it contains the figure of metonymy, in particular, uh, it's, which means that Christ is put for, or Christ Jesus is put for faith in him at justification and union and identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Because those two things are the reason why we experience the blessings that Paul's been talking about in this letter thus far. So here, though, the word Christos, Christ, it actually contains the figure of metonymy as well, but this time it means that the one and only Christ is put for a relationship and a fellowship with him. This word is the object of the improper preposition, uh, horis, horis, excuse me, and uh, horis, uh, it functions here as a marker of separation. So therefore, this word horis, the improper preposition, it's marking Jesus Christ as the person whom these Gentile Christians were separated from during their unregenerate state or did not possess a relationship with. So therefore, this prepositional phrase expresses the idea that these Gentile Christians used to exist in the state prior to their justification as being without Christ, quote-unquote, and specifically without a relationship or fellowship with Christ, quote-unquote. Now, as was the case in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, 2, 3, 5, 10, 12, 17, 20, 2, 5, 2, 6, and 2, 7, and 10, the word here in Ephesians 2.12, Christos, it emphasizes that Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate Son of God, delivered, saved the believer from the sin nature, his personal sins, the devil and his cosmic system, spiritual and physical death, eternal condemnation, all through his substitutionary spiritual and physical death and resurrection and session at the right hand of the Father. This word, uh, Christ, Messiah, is the other word we, a lot of times the Jews will use the term Messiah rather than Christ. Christ is the Greek one word. But Messiah, the Mashiach in the Hebrew, it denotes the Messiahship, this word Christ. It denotes the Messiahship of Jesus of Nazareth. And thus he's the deliverer of the human race in three areas through his death, resurrection, ascension, and session at the right hand of the Father. One, he delivered us 
uh, from enslavement to sin and Satan and his cosmic system. And the Lord's Messiahship has a fourfold significance. It means that he's separated unto God, authorized from uh, he's authorized to receives authorization from God. He receives divine enablement. He's the coming deliverer and, and, deliver, and it also it signifies the uniqueness of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the God-man. So Christos also signifies that Jesus of Nazareth served God the Father exclusively. And this was manifested by his execution of his heavenly Father's salvation plan for us, unregenerate sinners, which was accomplished again through his voluntary, substitutionary, spiritual and physical deaths on the cross and resurrection and session at the right hand of the Father. This word signifies that Jesus of Nazareth has been given authority by God to forgive sins, give eternal life, and authority over all creation and every creature as a result of his execution of the Father's salvation plan. That's what uh, Philippians is all about. If you uh, hold your place, look at Philippians chapter uh, 2, verse 1. Look at Philippians 2, 1. Philippians 2.1, I'm reading from the Net Bible. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy, and these are first-class conditions, meaning if and let's assume it's true for the sake of argument, there's any encouragement in Christ, comfort provided by love, fellowship by the Spirit, affection or mercy, and there is, and we know this is it, there it is. Complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love, being united in Spirit, having one purpose, instead of being motivated by selfish ambitions or vanity, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the, about the interests of others as well. You should have the same attitude toward one another Christ Jesus had. Now you've given Christ as the perfect example of humility because he just defined humility for us in verses 3 and 4. He says, who, Christ Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, the word form means essence, morphe, did not regard equality with God. See, he's affirming the deity of Christ as something to be grasped, an exploitable asset is the way to describe it. Cano, uh, what's the, uh, the word there? Apagmos, yeah. So then he says, but emptied himself. Canoe is the word there. I like the, the King James translation. Uh, he made himself of no reputation. That's a great translation. And how did he do this? Then the, the Net Bible does a great job putting the word by, B-I-Y in there because he's talking about how this is, in, how instrumentally how he did this. The means by which Jesus made himself of no reputation or emptied himself. By taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature, of course, without sin. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a result, God exalted him. And gave him the name, that name words onama there, it means rank. That is above every name or rank. So that at the rank of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. And so we see here that this word Christos, Christos, uh, Christ, it signifies that Jesus of Nazareth, has been given authority by God, as that passage just told us, to forgive sins, give eternal life, and authority over all creation and every creature as a result of the execution of the Father's salvation plan. It denotes that Jesus of Nazareth was perpetually guided and empowered by God the Holy Spirit during his first advent. The word Christos comes from a word 
meaning smeared with oil. So oil in the Old Testament, they used to anoint the, the priests and the, uh, the king with oil, okay? And that means that's, a, that's a, a symbolic of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus was perpetually empowered by the Holy Spirit from physical birth uh, because he's the Son of God and never committed an act of sin and uh, as, because he was God. And in fact, there was no temptation that would be attractive to him. And uh, so therefore, uh, the, all the temptations of Satan were basically to, to point out to people and the devil and make clear that he is the Son of God. And uh, so we see that uh, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit and uh, during his entire first advent and giving us the example as Christians in union with him, church age believers, how we must function as well. And that uh, he, he used the power of the Holy Spirit, which is a result of obeying what the Spirit's teaching us in the scriptures. And he was able to uh, conquer death for us and to Satan and his kingdom. So lastly, the word Christos Christ, it, sig it signifies that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised deliverer of the human race from the bondage of Satan, his cosmic system, and the old Adamic sin nature. Now, the second description of these Gentile Christians in verse 12 a description of them prior to their justification, their conversion to Christianity. Uh, it says that they were characterized as being alienated from Israel's citizenship. If you look at the, the NRSV, it says, remember that you were at that time without Christ. We've done that. Then he says, being alienated, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. The Net Bible translates this, alienated from the citizenship of Israel. So what's that all about? Well, if we, we see here that the second description of these Gentile Christians prior to their justification, which Paul presents here in Ephesians 2.12, is that, again, that they were characterized as being alienated from Israel's citizenship. Now, if we compare that uh, with the command to remember in Ephesians 2.11, with this second description of these Gentile Christians prior to becoming Christians in Ephesians 2.12, Paul wants these Gentile Christians, and you and I, because we're Gentile Christians as well, in the 21st century, to continue to make it our habit of remembering that we used to be characterized as being alienated from the nation of Israel's citizenship. And the word for alienated, it's the word apolotrio, which means to be alienated from someone since the word pertains to being considered foreign to someone and consequently separated from another citizenry. So to be alienated, apolotrio, and that means, again, it pertains to being considered foreign to someone and consequently separated from another citizenry. Now, they were alienated, these Gentile Christians, prior to their justification. They were alienated from the citizenship of the nation of Israel and that both groups were estranged from each other. It expresses the idea that there was hostility and unfriendly relations between the two groups prior to their conversion to Christianity. And why is that the case? Well, Paul goes on to tell us uh, in, uh, in verses 14 and 15, uh, uh, in 14, 15, and 16, uh, what was the problem between, why was what was the cause of the problem between the Jewish and Gentile Christians prior to justification? Well, look at what he says in verse 14. Paul says, for he is our peace, reading from the NRSV here, for he is our peace, Christ is, in his flesh, and he has made both groups, Jew and Gentiles, into one, and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. And what's that? He finds us what that hostility between us, the dividing wall is. In verse 15, he has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in the place of the two, thus making peace. The hostility, the law, was the, was the problem. 
And then he says in verse 16, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So the reason why we are alienated from the, the citizenship of Israel, us Gentiles, is that we were not under the law. The law was the law served to condemn us, and also uh, it kept the Jew, the Jews the Jews from interacting and having meals with uh, Gentiles, in the gen, in a Gentile home out of fear of of uh, causing themselves to be ceremony ceremonially unclean for eating unclean foods. So this was a hostility, and this was caused the great hostility between both races. The other thing was circumcision. Circumcision was performed on Jewish boys at eight days old. Jesus was uh, subjected to this when he was eight days old. And many of the Gentile races thought that was barbaric. We saw that with uh, Moses' wife. Uh, she would call him a, a husband of blood because she had to circumcise her kids. And uh, they didn't practice that in Egypt, you know. And they didn't so so this was a, uh, and of course, uh, people circumcise today uh, for, for health reasons, the kids, when they're Gentiles, uh, they see in the benefit of that. But, uh, you know, that the, the Jews were the ones that were doing this and it was a, a part of their uh, marks of identification of being God's covenant people. All right. So let's keep going forward here. So we see here that uh, this verb, apolotrio, apolotrio, to be alienated, it also appears in Ephesians 4.18. It's describing... Uh, Gentiles, it says they today, Gentile unbelievers today, and back in Paul's day who are not saved, they are darkened in their understanding, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. We also see this verb is also it appears in Colossians 121, which used to describe the Colossian Christian community when they were unsaved, and which community, like the one we're reading about here in Ephesians was Gentile. Colossians 1.21, and you were at one time strangers and enemies in your minds expressed through your deeds. So uh, we see here that uh, it says strangers there. That's the word translating the, the verb there, apolotrio. And so we see that the word for citizenship, politeia, it pertains to a body of citizens of a particular group of people or nation. And the articulate construction of this word politeia uh, citizenship is monadic, which indicates that this particular body of citizens is are, 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 are unique or one of a kind. The article is telling us this. And this use of the article is indicated by the, the words genitive adjunct, which is to Israel, which means of Israel. Thus, the entire expression, teis politeas, to Israel, from the citizenship of Israel, is expressing a monadic notion. The articulate genitive masculine singular form of the word Israel refers to the nation of Israel who were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And remember, Jacob got his name changed to Israel by God according to Genesis 32, 28. So the articulate construction of this word is also menatic as well, which means that the nation of Israel is unique or one of a kind. Why is that? Because it's the only nation which God elected to represent him to the rest of the citizens of the world. It's also unique because it's the only nation in the world in which God enter, entered into a covenant relationship with them. So, uh, this doesn't mean, what this means is that God, it's not that the Jews were any better than the gen, rest of the Gentiles. God told them when he, when he, when he chose them uh, as an elect nation, uh, I didn't elect you among the nations because you were greater or stronger than all the others. Uh, I, it was based on his grace policy, meaning he gave them unmerited blessings based upon their faith in him, based upon the merits of the object of their faith, which is him. 
So they weren't any better than us. They were just going to be a group of people that God would uh, accentuate his grace and he would uh, use them as the, the instrument or the conduit to bring in salvation to the world. Okay, so therefore, uh, the second description of these of the unregenerate state of these Gentile Christians was that they were alienated from Israel's citizenship in the sense that they did not belong to their citizenry. It describes them as being estranged from the citizenship of Israel and expresses the idea that there was hostility and unfriendly relations between them and this uh, these citizens of Israel prior to their conversion to Christianity. So, again, as we close, we have a, a, a Paul's very concerned about the Gentile Christian community uh, uh, and their relationship with the Jewish Christian community. So he's accentuating the grace of God here in chapter 2, verses 11 through uh, 22, just like he's accentuating the grace of God toward the Gentiles in verses 1 through 10. And grace, of course, is basically unmerited blessings. We don't earn or deserve the blessings God gives us in the spiritual realm, our union identification with Christ. Uh, but we receive these blessings based upon the merits of the object of our faith and our union identification with His Son, Jesus Christ. We're not better than anybody else. Uh, we're all equal before the cross. Christ died for all sinners and because all sinners are uh, uh, against Him, are opposed to Him uh, by nature and practice. And so, therefore, Christ had to die for all people, unlimited atonement. And anybody, whoever they are, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, whoever believes in his son, Jesus Christ, he makes them, in the, during this dispensation, a part of the new humanity, the bride of Christ, who's going to reign over the works of God's hand during the millennial reign of his son, Jesus Christ. So, you and I should be giving thanks and praise to God tonight in our prayers and every day for where God has taken us. You know, he describes our pre-justification, pre-conversion state in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And then again in verses 11 and 12. Why? Because he wants the Gentile Christians, who are the recipients of this letter, to give thanks to God, to praise him, continually remember where they came from, to keep them humble. And that would be very significant in order to uh, interact with these Jewish Christians. Okay? And uh, remember, humility was the whole story in Ephesians, uh, Philippians chapter 2 that we just read, where Jesus, despite the fact that he's the eternal son of God, uh, he humbled himself uh, by uh, becoming a human being and a servant. He came, Matthew, uh, Mark 2, uh, 10, 45, the son of man did not come to serve, be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom. And we have to follow this, have the same mindset. We should be servants. And the great ones in the kingdom of God are servants. The pastor is to be a servant. He ex exercises his authority by being a servant and feeding his flock, being uh, praying for his flock, and also giving them the example for his flock to follow. And so we are uh, to be servants, we're to be humble, we're to be always remembering where we came from because it puts things in perspective. It'll help us deal with our adversities and realize that, boy, our biggest problem has already been resolved at our justification. So now uh, we need to go forward in this plan and endure undeserved suffering because it's going to produce rewards at the Bama seat. We must be faithful stewards with the time, talent, and treasure and truth that God gave us and because that will be rewarded at the Bama seat. We're here to serve Him. That's what sanctification is all about. We're here to serve Him. We're set apart to serve Him exclusively. This is not about us. It's not about uh, anything but doing what He wants us to do and ultimately that can be described as growing up to spiritual maturity. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 talks a lot about that and also Philippians chapter 3. So we'll pick this up on Saturday.
at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. And remember, that'll be our last class on Saturday before the Thanksgiving break, which will resume classes after. So Saturday will be our last class before that break, and then we resume classes Tuesday, November 28th. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study Word. Thank you for those who are here listening or watching these classes today or at a later date through the recordings. I pray that each person will be spoken to individually and all of us as a corporate unit. Guide us by the Spirit in making carefully considering the passages and principles that we've noted here this morning so that uh, to, in order that we can go make personal application in our very own lives and continue to forge ahead, persevering, becoming more like your Son, Jesus Christ, in thought, word, and action. And in his, his great and glorious name we pray. Amen.